0: To Cyberology, Dakota State University's podcast for all things cyber and technology. I'm Jen Burris, and today our guest is Mark Spanier, and he is here to talk about cryptography. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself,
1: Mark? Yeah, sure. So, as I said, my name is Mark, and I'm an associate professor here at DSU. So, I teach a bunch of courses in cryptography, some mathematics, some AI, some computer science, so, I don't know, a full range of things that I get super excited about. Awesome.
0: So let's start out with the basics. What is cryptography?
1: So cryptography is kind of an all-encompassing term that's basically looking into any way that we want to essentially secure information and send that out into the sphere that, you know, I would want to play with possibly later. So it's going to look into how we can essentially lock things up in a hopefully safe and secure way to then later be retrieved.
0: Okay. And can you tell us a little bit about the history of cryptography?
1: Sure. So it's I don't know, it's pretty old in some regards. So I think there's some accounts of it being like 4,000 years old. There's some stories that, you know, it goes back to some ancient Egyptians where they weren't using like super sophisticated ciphers, but at least changing up certain symbols. Mm-hmm. Some of the the history on that is like a little bit cloudier, just as it I don't know, it's not as well documented, obviously, but it has fully, you know, emerged more recently as kind of as war and other things emerge. There's needs for further secretive communication. So a lot of times people, when they first look into some crypto stuff, maybe will, you know, stumble across like a Caesar cipher or something like that, Mm -hmm. which usually is going to be connected back to Roman times as this way to, you know, also secretly send messages. So you have a population of people that you know, maybe do know how to read and write. So you're going to start like scrambling things up a way that, you know, somebody else hopefully has the ability to unscramble some of these things. In the last hundred or so years, I guess kind of in the, you know, World War One, World War II era, those things sure. really emerge just as a, you know, how do we actually, you know, use this information to mm-hmm. then, you know, relay information that we really hope other people aren't reading. So it's I know, kind of evolved throughout a whole bunch of other things and, you know, constantly is moving and changing and doing all sorts of crazy stuff.
0: Okay. And can you kind of talk about how that's continued to evolve as computers and the internet have become such a prevalent? Part of our lives,
1: yeah. So if you go back to, I guess, kind of even in the like World War II discussion, maybe you've heard of something like an Enigma machine. There's, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. these cool little boxes that you may have seen at some, I don't know, museum or something like that. Which, in that scenario, was like an actual physical device that did some things. They, you know, were actually fairly expensive to create back then. And in that scenario, you would send messages out. And if somebody else had another one of these boxes, then they had some information. They could easily read what message was actually sent to them. This is often referred to as kind of like a symmetric cipher. So like you and I, if we're wanting to have one of these discussions, Mm -hmm. then we would, you know, both be in possession of this secret decoder ring, essentially. So that if I wanted to send you some message, (laughs) I would take it, push it through my secret decoder, send it to you, and then you would use essentially the same secret decoder and then you would go ahead and be able to unscramble whatever like junk I sent you. So here I would, you know, take some phrase, twist it up, hopefully make it like absolutely awful so you can't read it at all. But then because you know the, the secret on how to undo it, you can easily read it. That does take this, you know, kind of mutual agreement that you and I at some point in time sat down and were like, hey, from here on out, if we're ever going to talk, we're going to do it like this. Okay. And as you go into the computer age, obviously, we don't necessarily always have that aspect. We could, you know, still want to communicate, but maybe we don't ever have that opportunity to, like, sit down in an agreed-upon scenario of, like, hey, we're going to talk like this. Okay. So if you don't have that initial agreement, then we're kind of, you know, at a loss. It's like, so any communication that you and I are going to do is going to be over some open channel, and we have, you know, no idea what's Who's being – looking under- at it. Yeah. So then – that slowly emerged into this world of not trying to do this symmetrically but trying to do it like asymmetrically or sometimes referred to as a public key. So we're going to try to do some discussion back and forth all of that totally open to the world. But then the hope is that at the end of the day, maybe we're now in possession of some secret decoder. So this was really popular back in the 70s is kind of when this whole process started, you know, gaining a ton of momentum. Up until Mm -hmm. then, it was all just like, you know, physical devices, physical ciphers, doing all of these things, these nice symmetric processes. And then in the 70s, it started kind of asking that question of like, well, this other forms of communication is off in the horizon. Maybe we start needing to do something that we can communicate without ever having an agreed upon, you know, landing pad. So that is kind of the, the kind of dawn of this like public key crypto mm-hmm. stuff, which is what we use all the time still now as, you know, you're making that initial handshake with your, you know, bank or something like that. It's like you're you're opening this line of communication and you're going to be sending some of those things.
0: Okay. And so how do you go about teaching cryptography? I know you you said that there's a lot of mathematics in it. Can you kind of speak on that?
1: Yeah. So the the math is, I mean, it's always been there. And that's kind of some of these early on ciphers. Most of the times on how those ones were actually broken were some cute use of mathematics in kind of a clever way. Actually, one of the, the things that actually ultimately broke the Enigma machine. So the Enigma machine, if you you know, can envision some like crazy big typewriter in front of you. What ends up (laughs) Uh happening is you push a button down and then it goes through a little plug board. There's some little rotors. There's little wheels that are all going to be moving. And then another letter like highlights. So if you push the letter A... It's going to essentially be encrypted into the letter W or something like that.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: One of the weird things on that is just the physical mechanism itself would not allow you to encrypt the same letter with itself. So if you pushed the letter A, it was impossible to to have that get sent. Yeah, it, 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 it could never go back to the letter A. And that actually became just because, like, the wheels, like, wouldn't allow, you know, the button you push to also be the button that lights Mm -hmm. up. So there were, you know, physical limitations with this device that it could not be encrypted like that, which actually became one of the, like, little tiny slivers that you could then start poking at to then you know, exploit that a little bit of like, oh, if you can't do that, then it, you know, leads into a whole snowball effect of a whole bunch of other things, which is really where some of the, the kind of fun puzzles that exist inside of live. is that you have this system, it's all set up, we're going to do it like this. And just kidding, that breaks because something else ends up working. It's kind of similar to if you've, you know, done the like Sunday afternoon little like word jumble things. Like those okay. are ciphers. So you have, you know, some phrase that all the letters have been scrambled up into some other phrase. Well, one of the first things you might end up doing is just like a basic like frequency analysis of this, of like, well, in this random garbled up thing, the letter, you know, W appears more than any other letter. So then you're like, well, there's a decent chance that that letter W might end up being the letter E. Or something like the most frequent letter in the English alphabet. So you can attack some of those on this like frequency analysis side of things. But that also like leads us into like development is that we know that those are faults. So we need to like further mask some of those things. So when it comes to garbling up some type of message, just doing basic substitutions and swappings obviously isn't going to be good enough. So you'd ask me about, like, teaching, and that's usually how I first start is, like, the first couple of days in, you know, crypto class, we'll we'll play with some old ciphers, play with Mm -hmm. some of those things, and then, you know, run the numbers of, like, on paper, it should take, you know, essentially, like, the length of, you know, the known universe amount of time to actually decrypt this thing. But because we know X, Y, and Z we can actually break this thing like almost immediately. And then that usually, you know, snowballs into a discussion of like, okay, like what do we actually need in order to make this possibly secure? secure? Yeah. Okay.
0: So um, what are some of your students' reactions when they get to kind of decode things? Um, Because uh, how does that kind of impact them as a student?
1: So the, I mean, that's probably the most fun part of it. I mean, all of us in these courses usually love puzzles and love the like exploration side of it. So then you'll just like give them like here is, you know, some cipher text that was encrypted in this way and just like have at it and see what you can get out of it. Again, these, you know, some of these systems that have known faults are where we usually start being like, here's a thing. There's actually some issues with this. So, like, try to leverage that issue. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes this, like, you know, attempt of trying to play around with different things of like, well, if we know this, then we know this. And then maybe we can try this kind of thing. And it's actually been, you know, a pretty popular thing in the world of, like, some of these competitions. So, you you know, may have seen some of our students that compete in various, like, you know, cyber competitions or Mm -hmm. CTFs and things like that. There's usually a, a fairly large collection of, like, crypto problems. And all of those crypto problems that exist in these CTFs are, like, all designed like that. They're all some problem or some puzzle. And there's always some little, like, sliver that something was done wrong. And you have to, like, exploit, like, what did somebody do wrong? Yeah. So it takes knowledge of, like, that whole system and how it all works because on the surface it looks totally fine. Like, it looks like nobody did anything bad. But then if you, like, pull back the curtains just a little bit, you're like, ah, I see what they did. This this was a bad decision because Mm -hmm. this happens and then voila, I can then get that. So students do love playing around with that. They're, you know, some of the most rewarding, like you know, homework pro- problems is just to like give them something and like let them just loose. Just be like, I I made a blunder here. Like, figure out what I did what wrong. It was. Because then later on, that you know, guides the discussion on like, okay, so like when it comes to decisions to make these things, don't don't do the <laughs> bad thing, or like we know that there may be limitations, so let's try to avoid those things.
0: Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned some of the cyber competitions. How does cryptography kind of pair with um the cyber background?
1: Yeah. so, I mean, crypto is in the background of pretty much everything. It's sometimes this tool that you forget that you're using all over the place. I mean, anytime you're trying to do something securely, the hope is that, you know you're garbling that information up in some way. So when you, you know, access a website and you give them your password. And, you know, ideally somebody's not like just storing your password in plain text, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, been run through some salting and hashing process to then be stored correctly so that, you know, it's not just living out in the ethers. So anytime you want to, you know, communicate in these things, there's always going to be a crypto element that's going to land on it. It. You know, becomes one of these things that you need to know a little bit about how it works. Sometimes people will just like go out and use it without, you know, fully knowing how it actually functions. Mm-hmm. So I sometimes will use like the, you know, the car analogy of, you know, certain days it's just totally fine. You can just go out and drive the car and you don't <laughs> really care how a car works because it, it gets you from point A to point B. So crypto sometimes like that, you just like put it into this black box of just being like, take message encrypt cool it all worked it's there <laughs> yeah and then other times you want to be like okay well like i maybe want to open up the hood to see like what happened like i broke down on the highway it would be useful to like know how this process works so then if you know you open up the hood and dig around in a little bit then you at least you know know how the process works and again then that can propel it as you're trying to improve it and see where it's going to go afterwards so the the long answer of where it exists in the crypt in the you know cyber world, it exists everywhere. I mean, it's you're hard pressed to find some aspect that doesn't make use of it. Again, how much knowledge a person needs to know on it varies depending on the implementation, but it's mm-hmm. all over the place.
0: Okay, and um, what kind of future careers do students have um, with a cryptography degree?
1: So at DSU, so we obviously have our cyber operations degree, which has you know our NSA stamp of approval. And it was a couple of years ago that we actually were looking through some of those requirements, which has a cryptography component. Mm -hmm. And in that, we started developing a few specialty crypto courses. We basically had a bunch of crypto stuff like sprinkled into a bunch of classes, but then decided to like, you know, make a couple like standalone crypto courses. So students that wanted to play around in that field then had a couple extra courses. And then those courses essentially led to a specialization within our mathematics degree so that a student with that will actually end up having a degree in math with this crypto specialization. Mm-hmm. A lot of our students then end up having like a, a double major between that and artificial intelligence, that and cyber ops, that and computer science. So where they choose to go with it afterwards is pretty much open-ended. I mean, they can leverage that power you know, in any aspect they want to. A lot of them will end up working for, you know, various government agencies just because they like the puzzles. And that's where the puzzles are being developed a lot of times mm-hmm. to come up with some of these standardizations and things like that. So it's it's pretty open-ended.
0: Very cool. Um, so where do you see the future going for cryptography?
1: Oh, that's actually a, a very on-point question, I guess, right now. So the, the discussion I had before of, you know, like in the 70s, there was this like crazy big, you know, like internet's on the horizon we need to start talking about like how we're going to lock some of these things up so you may have you know heard things like RSA or maybe like when you log into your bank's computer you know they may say like this is protected by blah 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 RSA mm-hmm. like bit encryption that process is going to die <laughs> like it's going to not be secure in the future you may have heard some certain things of like quantum computing and you know it's always this like buzzword that gets floating around sure but in you know the the late 80s early 90s there was this like Realization that if quantum computing becomes like a thing, mm-hmm. then all of the current crypto systems that we have, all these public key systems that we have, all become essentially dead. Like they're all just not going to work anymore because quantum computing will basically just like break them all immediately. immediately. Kind of thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's like taking a, you know, really sophisticated computer right now and going back like a 100 100 years and being able to like solve any of these older riddles basically is now like a new thing We'll just like destroy all of that So with that, there's been this, like, big push to develop, like, the next thing. So, you know, the thing that in 20 years when you log into your bank's website, the little, like, lock will then say, like, what is now securing it? Mm -hmm. So there's been a few different rounds of, you know, evaluation. So NIST, so the National Institute of Standards and Technology, basically put out this, like, big, you know, announcement that said, like, hey, we know this is going to be broken. Let's prep. So let's see what's going to happen so it was like back in 2015, I think the like first, you know, proposal came out that said like, let's let's do better, let's, let's come up with some of those things. So it's gone through a few different rounds of scrutiny. And then this last summer, so summer of 22, they they made their like recommendation. So their official like standardization was then announced to the world. So then people can now like dig into, you know, like, okay, now we know what we're gonna be working with. So let's like really hone in to try to see further if there's any of those little like you know wiggles of room that we could like possibly break into it still so it's become this you know world that we now know where we're going Mm -hmm. so now we can like put all hands on deck to actually go ahead and try to like fully understand it as well as inform other people that are you know in these spheres of like what's going to be emerging again there's going to be you know millions of people that are going to be using these processes, they're probably not all going to know like the intimate, like inner workings of it, like that very small part of this car that we've now like, we're going to swap out. We want to make sure like all of the cars still are going to be working, even though we like put a new little part on the inside of it. So that'll, you know, guide us in some of our courses and curriculum and some of the other things as, you know, gearing people up for Mm -hmm. the future.
0: And um, with quantum computing, uh, is that looking like something in the next 10 years, 15, 20 is there an idea?
1: I think it depends on who you ask. So, it's always been this like 2040 has been the like looming like it's going to happen by it's going to be like it's going to happen by 2040. And then that needle has like moved back and they're just like maybe it happens 2030 or maybe it happens 2070. So the, the answer is, like, not fully known. So that, you know, quantum computing exists in, like, very small abilities right now. So the what they're capable of doing right now is not much. But as with most things in computing and technologies, like, once a thing starts doing little things, then they... It
0: quickly evolves. Yeah, yeah, and they,
1: yeah they grow exponentially. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, if you, if you don't catch it early on, like, all of a sudden, it's just going to be there. Mm-hmm. So the... The, the thought is like it's a, you know, a 20-year-ish thing, but it easily could be much less than that.
0: Okay. And um, one more question for you. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the importance of cryptography as artificial intelligence advances?
1: Yeah. So, As you know, DSU now has like a a new AI degree and some of our students in our crypto program are actually in that in both worlds. So the the same kind of quests that we've had in crypto of trying to, you know, preserve security and anonymity and all of Mm -hmm. these things also exists inside of the AI realm as well. You're passing around ridiculously large amounts of information. So if you think just like a car driving down the street with sensors and cameras and all of these things, they're taking tons of pictures. And those pictures might be like of people or other like sensitive material. And you may not want all of that information to actually go to, you know, like the central learning process. So rather than send the pictures on their own, what we'll typically do is, you know, you can take those... You can add in certain layers of encryption, maybe stream it down. You take your, you know, the, the learning models that are going to occur. You can then you know, encrypt those things. Somewhere in that process, you'll end up doing some type of encryption just to, to kind of mask what that process is looking at or what you're actually. You know, seeing so that mm-hmm. you're not, you know, possibly sending out sensitive information and stuff like that. So, the moment you have the data in like the AI realm that is positively sensitive, there's always going to be this layer of encryption that will then end up occurring. So, a thing that's been you know popular as of late is like various hospitals that have like patient data and all these things and it would be nice to have all of these hospitals essentially take all of their information and you know aggregate in some way well you can't just like send the raw patient data so you have to encrypt it and you know there's a bunch of keys that are going to be sent around so it just like the the cyberspace that exists has crypto all over the place ai mm-hmm. has that as well it's just the moment you're work the moment you're working with anything like that there's always going to be a need to you know, lock these things down so that the right people can work with them, but then also like bring it back to what it's supposed to be too.
0: Okay. Well, anything else you want to share about cryptography today?
1: No, It's a lot of puzzles. It's sweet. I mean, that's really where I got super interested in these things and it's where a lot of like students get excited about it as well is that, you know, you kind of forget of like your little kid toys are just mm-hmm. like these little like, oh, I have this little cipher, these little puzzles and, you know, you're, you're playing around with it for a little while and then like once you kind of figure out how it works then you want like a harder and more challenging puzzle and that's you know where that world is you know always been is that there's always harder more elaborate puzzles and that's mm-hmm. all we're doing is just trying to make you know trickier puzzles that you know even a fancy computer is not able to solve so then the puzzles get extra complicated <laughs> but they're a lot of fun so I do enjoy them so, a lot. So uh,
0: a combination of cracking these puzzles but also creating new and more uh elaborate ones
1: yep absolutely yeah. so it's it's a little bit of both so some of our times are just you know trying to play with somebody else's toy and trying to break <laughs> their toy but then it's also like well i should probably try to make my own that if you know if i'm going to keep on breaking somebody else's you know you need to contribute your own so that somebody else can tear your own apart then too
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today, Mark. Yeah, no Um, problem. I enjoyed it. I know a lot more about cryptography now and hopefully (laughs) our listeners do too. Thank you for listening to Cyberology. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe.